The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful for your care for us, moment by moment, day by day. You've sustained us through this week and brought us to this point, and now you sit us down to teach us, to do us good with truth from your mouth planted into our hearts to grow us up. We're grateful for that. Thank you. And we ask now, please, by your Spirit, accomplish that purpose. Will you grow us up? Will you shape us in ways that, that are honoring to you and that, that bring great joy to us and also that are useful for others who are watching? This morning we, we talk about a subject we, we touched on last week. We continue on to think about how we deal with persecution and that will be helpful to us, but there's a particular emphasis this morning on the others who are watching. They're kind of on the fringes, always in the background watching and I pray you would accomplish something in us this morning that does good to them. We don't know who they are, but we pray for them, that you would draw them near and that you would save in part because of what you do in us today with this passage. So shape us, build your church, draw others in for your honor. For your honor and for the growth of your church, we pray. Thank you. Amen. The whole framework of this book of 1 Peter that we've been looking at for some time now is that Christians are chosen by God and therefore rejected by the world. We are elect exiles. That's chapter 1, verse 1. Right from the start, it kind of tells us who we are. We are outcasts. We are strangers in the land. Even if this was the place of our birth, this isn't our home. Now, a lot of times, in a lot of places, Christians don't really experience that outcast reality. It doesn't come at us that hard because the world around us doesn't notice us or doesn't mind us or is kind of indifferent. Or perhaps in a particular locale, at a particular time, maybe Christians are the dominant local culture for the moment. Lots of us present, and so that changes some things. But eventually, that, that all kind of settles down to the norm. The water finds its level and this world is not our home and the full weight of the world that is at odds with God and therefore at odds with us is felt. Opposition rises. Sometimes even the word persecution would fit. What do you do with that? This was the topic picked up last week in verses 8 to 12 of chapter 3 and the short answer was, in a word, love. We love others, even our enemies. The passage kind of focuses on people that we call enemies, not because we are enemies to them, but because they are opposing us. Love even our enemies. Love other Christians for sure, but when others come at us, reviling and cursing, those are the kinds of words used. When that comes at us, what do we return back? Blessing. We live a life of love, 
That was the teaching from last week and the surprising motivation that came in at the end. It was in verse 9 and then reinforced by 10, 11, 12. What's the surprising motivation is that we, we live a life of love, we give blessing, and that is to give us ourselves blessing. That's, that's odd. But I think powerful as you kind of think that through. We bless, and in that blessing, God blesses us. It does us good. He does us good. It was intriguing and, and perhaps a, a helpful motivation. But that's not all that Peter has to say. Those, those verses there, that's not all that Peter has to say about how we live with enemies who persecute us. The same context leads us right into today's passage in verses 13 to 17. It, it may be hard to connect in your mind, but there is a word and there's a lot of language that connects it. But in my Bible, physically, you turn the page and it can kind of seem like this is something separate. It's not. It's part of the same. It, it flows right into this. And he has more to say in the same general context of opposition. How do we live in that? How do we live under that? How do we respond for our good, for God's glory, but as I also prayed, for the good of other people too? What do we do there? How do we live there? What's that like? How do we sit under the suffering of persecution? That's what we're going to consider today as we look at the same kind of context again and learn a little bit more. So you could really kind of say this is part two from last week. It's a continuation of it in some ways. But let me read verses 13 to 17, and then I'll draw two observations about this from this paragraph about how we live in the face of hardship and persecution. 1 Peter 3, beginning verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. First Peter 3, draw two observations from this passage, and here's the first. Amidst suffering, fight fear of man with faith in Christ. Amidst suffering, fight fear of man with faith in Christ. The fear of man, or it could be women, I mean people in general. In this case, it's those who would be attacking us, who would be coming at us. And we have to fight the fear there in some way because that would be something that would drive us away from the life of love that we talked about last week. We see the calling there, but in the face of something that's fearful, we kind of shrink back and don't do that. So we got to address fear and fight it while undergoing suffering, not after it's over or instead of suffering. In the middle of suffering, we got to deal with fear. And in this context, as I said, he is talking about some people coming at us, some persecution. And that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. But you might, in your mind, you might notice off to the side here, maybe in the back, I can apply a lot of this to other situations in my life that are fearful. 
It doesn't have to be purely a situation where there's some sort of religious persecution. It might be some other person who's coming at me or some other situation that's coming at me and, and is in some way fearful or intimidating. Much of what's here this morning about dealing with fear and faith in Christ will apply to that, but I'm not going to talk about that because the passage is about particularly persecution. So maybe kind of keep that in mind. But the, does, the passage does connect back with this word now that it's the beginning. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you're zealously, vigorously, constantly pursuing peace, blessing, doing good, like last week's passage said, said we should, God's for you, who's going to be against you? That's the flow of this, and because of God's common grace, the answer sort of is, well, not many people. God's common grace has put something in the world that recognizes good, and there is a general understanding that people who bless, people who don't curse, people who don't revile, who don't insult, but are kind and gracious and loving, those people make friends. More often than not, those people attract friends and don't make enemies, and so there's some good advice here and some wisdom in a general statement Who's going to be against you when you do that? So do that. But that's not what he means to teach. Verse 14, who's there to harm you? Well, no one really, but of course there's someone. There's always going to be someone or some group, and even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, even when you're doing absolutely everything you should, and, and a righteous life, it, it's fair to say this is right, and I still suffer, even in that situation, you still will be blessed, the verse says. Literally it says, you suffer for righteousness, blessed one. It's a pronouncement like that. Blessed one. It's an emphatic statement, that's you in the middle of your suffering. You live a life of love and you give away your life and what happens you find it. God hears your prayers and answers you now to give you what you need now, particularly to give you himself, a connection with himself that is what your heart was made for, but also to give you the other things that you need now. And also then, chapter 1, he has secured for you an inheritance that is coming for sure in heaven. So even in the midst of this suffering, it's coming at you and it hurts, but right now you have what you need. You have fellowship with the one whom you need, and you have an eternity promised you in heaven. That's who you are, blessed one. That's true of you. And everything that comes at you and is meant for evil, God, in fact, just turns that for good and pours out more blessing on you. So if you think all that through, who is there actually to harm you? Like, what, what, actually, what actually can be done to harm you? Well, nothing. Well, of course, everything. I mean, lots of stuff can harm you. But you see what he's doing here. Who really is there against you? Well, there's sure, of course, people against you. What actually can they do to harm you? Yes, of course they can harm you. But he's kind of putting something in front of us to make us think this through, that every curse that comes at me, God actually turns for a blessing. Every light and momentary affliction that comes at me secures for me a blessing that's everlasting. 
What men mean for evil, God means for good. i got to think that through. You actually are what Paul talked about. Remember 2 Corinthians 6? I'm dying, yet I live. I own nothing, but I possess everything. That's you, Christian. Take a step back from this and realize he's got a section here in in Peter that we've talked about that began, chapter 2, verse 11, with your identity in Christ and moved through then how you deal with all the authority structures that are over you and now how at the end you deal with affliction from other people and ends with blessed one. Your identity in Christ, blessed one. That's who you are. Who can harm you? What is there to be afraid of? That's where he goes immediately in the middle of verse 14. To fear, and he puts it down. What is there to be afraid of? Who is there to be? Nothing. Nothing. And if you work that through, you say, oh, yeah. I get that. Logically, that all follows. Emotionally, that can be challenging in the middle of hardship, yeah. But logically, that follows. If I am so secured as this passage says I am, as this book says I am, then what kind of harm is there actually to fear? I'm a blessed one. I'm a child of God, an heir of the kingdom, an object of his mercy, and I stand in grace. What is there to be afraid of? Logically, we need to grab a hold of that and work that through. Take that captive and say, take this fearful thing captive and say, yep, that's right. You know, actually, this is a whole lot like what he just said to Christian wives. Fearful things, yeah, don't fear them. Think it through, logically. Okay, so I'm going to put that there and say, yes. And I hope that we all say, yeah. I, I've heard so much of what's been said here in Peter. I see that. I get that. And now I'm going to say, but that's not all. That's not really even the main place he wants us to land. Because this is actually an allusion to Isaiah chapter 8. And that takes things to a whole other level in my mind. When he says here in this verse, so whom have you to fear? Don't, don't, don't fear them. Don't, don't let your heart be troubled. That's Isaiah chapter 8. And the context in Isaiah chapter 8 is the prophet Isaiah in the middle of Israel with a whole bunch of people who are bent against God, a king who is bent against God, and an invading Assyrian army on the way. Enemies and enemies and enemies and vicious enemies coming. Anything to fear there? Yeah, for sure. You keep reading on there, and the king of Assyria says he's going to shave the land like a razor. Assyria is going to destroy the place. There is something to fear. But what does God say to the prophet and to his people? He says, 
Don't fear them. Do not fear what they fear. All the wicked people around, the wicked king around, the wicked Assyrians who are coming, do not fear them. Not because, Isaiah, it's not a big deal, they're not actually coming. Not because, Isaiah, you and your small little band of faithful people can handle it. Not even because, Isaiah, I want you to think this through and realize how you are a blessed one and everything that comes against you, harmful as it may be, actually just enhances the eternal inheritance that you're going to receive. And so the curses are actually a blessing to you. Logically, that's true, but that's not what I'm resting on, Isaiah. What he says to him in Isaiah 8, do not fear them, do not let your heart be troubled, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and your dread. See what he does there? He changes fears. Do not fear them. Fear the Lord. Do not fear them. Don't let your heart be troubled. Make the Lord your fear, the Lord of hosts your fear. Let him be your dread, which, of course, in the words of the Bible, does not mean be terrified and quaking in your boots, Isaiah. It means regard him as holy, set him up on high, consecrate him, separate from all the things in the world. He is the one you revere. He is the one who holds your attention. He is the one you stand in awe of. Not these guys with spears and swords in their hands. Him who holds all of eternity in his hand. Not these people who are going to try to kill your body. Him who can kill the soul. Revere the God Almighty who reigns over all the earth and over all these people. And you should say that with a little bit of heat in it. Because he's God. He's God. They're just people. They're dust. Gone. And he is the Lord of hosts. Revere that one. Let him be the one who controls all your thinking and all your feeling and all of your loving and all of your hoping. That's what God tells Isaiah and Isaiah's little band of faithful people. Don't fear them. Fear me. Don't fear them. Trust me. Hope in me. Depend on me. Regard me. Stand in awe of me. This is the one who judges the living and the dead, who will turn his eyes upon his people and his ears will be open to their prayers. And Isaiah's word, and he will become a sanctuary to us. See, that that right there is the clue that that the fear of the Lord, the dread of the Lord is not a quaking, terrified, because he's going to become a sanctuary. He's going to become a home, a protective enclave. When you fear him, he's your hope. And you'll set his face against the wicked. 
Fear the Lord, not people. This is a dramatic change of scope of vision. That's all Isaiah, and that's exactly what Peter is trying to say here with one slight change. In verse 15, it's not the Lord of hosts that we should fear. It's Christ the Lord. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. It's as if Peter says, and just, just to be clear, the Lord of hosts that we're talking about, his name is Jesus. King Christ, King Jesus. He's the one who reigns. He's the one that in our hearts we have to enthrone, to set up on high. That's what drives away fear. All around, all around, always are a world full of people who disagree with us, who oppose us in one way or another, and trouble of all other sorts too. Stuff, affliction, hardship, threat, pain. There are people around us who will seek our harm for one reason or another. The context here is because of Christian faith, but other ones too. Other contexts too. Don't fear that. that that's what would be normal. Don't fear that, but instead... Regard the Lord as holy. Don't fear what's out there and coming at you. Set him up in your heart and in your mind as the one to be revered, the one who controls all things. And notice this is an action point, not just an information point. In your hearts, regard him. This is not, in other words, just a statement. It's a to-do. He is that. But we are often prone to forget. And this is the key to living in the middle of trouble with hope, and I'll say it even with joy, to actually take control of what's going on in here, what's going on inside of us, and to regard something else as supreme. Someone else as supreme. That's, that's the point here, the call on us here. So we should pause right there and say, how's that muscle in you? That, that, it's a to-do. How's that muscle in you? How's that instinct in you? When you face something fearful, what, what's, the, what's the response habitually in you? Oftentimes, I, I think a lot of us, our, our tendency is to try to just kind of like bear through it, grit our teeth, kind of suck it up and move on, or perhaps to fight it, to maybe to even become a little bit indignant with it, maybe to, to oppose it in some way, try to get rid of it in some way, or more reasonably and permissibly, as we saw in previous sections, to pursue some manner of recourse, something in our society that says, that's not right, we should get rid of that. That's, all, that's permissible, that's okay. But here's an alternative offer from God, actually an instruction from God to us. Change what reigns in here. Is that your instinct? Is that, is that your impulse? When faced with something fearful, is your, is your impulse like, oh wait, but the Lord, he reigns. This is a threat, but 
Oh, wait, there is a God who has his hand over all of that and who is for me. This is something beyond just logically working out how it might be that this would become blessing for me. It's, it's a, a paradigm shift that I see not people and not governments and systems and jobs and money as controlling, but as God controlling. I know many of the people in this room would completely agree with that. The question is, where do you run when you face the fear? When the fear comes at you, do you run to, ah, but the Lord reigns? Is that your instinct? Is that the muscle, the impulse? And you'll know by how your fear level goes. Your anxiety level. If your anxiety level goes up, you can tell, I'm not running to the Lord. If your anxiety level stays flat, Maybe you're not aware of what's going on, but if your anxiety level stays flat and you are aware, that's a good sign. That, that's where you want to be. I see the fearful thing, and I see the Lord who reigns, and I fear him. This is the key to living full of hope amidst all sorts of fearful situations, and there will be no end to those fearful situations. Verses 16 and 17 remind us of that. We may be as gentle and respectful and gracious and above reproach as we possibly can be, and people will still resist us. People will still. The world is against the Lord and will slander our good behavior in Christ, it says. That's going to happen. And actually, verse 17, God says sometimes he's going to actually will that to happen. on purpose, by God's design. I thought you said that God was against those who are wicked. Yeah, he is. And eventually, they will be put to shame, as the end of verse 16 says, at the judgment. But not immediately, often not immediately. God has a purpose in allowing that to continue against us and for us to sit in, it says, suffering. Suffering for Christ, suffering and doing good. He's got a purpose in that, which is going to get us a little bit towards the second point. But too often we say, I, I don't want that, I don't like that, we resist it, we try to oppose it. And God has said, here's how you can sit in the middle of that, not get rid of it, sit under it for the sake of others and know joy and rest yourself. And I leave you there in part to press that issue in you. There's something for the sake of others, as I said, we're going to come to that. But Christian, do you realize that if God leaves you there, he's the one who reigns and you're still there? That's on purpose. That's, got a, that's part of his plan. And he's got you there in part to press something in you. To press this issue in you. Who's on the throne in your heart? Who controls your vision? What's... What's, what's your natural, your, your 
impulsive response. I want to press that. I want to, I want to dethrone humanness. I want to dethrone worldliness and enthrone in your heart Christ, that you would find him to be your sanctuary, your resting place, your ark amidst the storm. You would find him to be that, and that would produce great joy for you in the middle of suffering, and that will be puzzling to other people. And they'll want to know where that comes from which is the second point. Moving towards the, the second, I think, important part of this passage. You work through the, the first part and you, you see we, we've got something we're going to face and we are not to fear it and fear within it, but instead to enthrone the Lord. Okay? And while we're doing that, it says... Always being prepared. While doing that, always being ready to give an answer, a defense. Sometimes we hear the word defense, we think of attack, and so it seems like we're in that context. So we've got opponents who are coming against us and we're being attacked, we're going to defend. But in this particular phrase right here, Peter has something else in mind. Not people who are attacking, but people who are asking. Certainly there are attackers, but God wants to point out something and make us aware. There are always going to be other people, maybe former attackers, maybe just bystanders who are watching, who are going to see that and this and are going to say, how did that happen from this? That's interesting. I get this, and I know how I respond when that happens, but this person was something else. Why? God's alerting us here. That's going to happen. So be ready. Ready, and in fact, pray for this to happen. That always in every circumstance, not just when attacked, but always in every circumstance, Something that happens in life will produce a response in us that makes people say, how? We talked about this back in chapter 2, verse 12, the beginning of this much larger section here. And I called it back then, this is the, the bread and butter witnessing pattern. When we, when we Christians, we, we look at the Bible, we think about witnessing or evangelism, oftentimes we focus on the Apostle Paul, and we see what Paul did, and we, we glean lessons from that, and there are certainly things that we can and should learn from Paul. But we also should keep in mind that Paul was an apostle and a frontier missionary church planter. So some of the things that are modeled by Paul are unique, or are to a degree unique for Paul. We should... Kind of keep that in mind. But here we have Peter specifically teaching the plain old ordinary church with plain old ordinary Christians in it how we should be witnesses in the world. This is bread and butter witnessing, if you will. The, the ordinary, the normal. And what he lays out for us here, this model is live, love, do good, don't fear, and be ready. Live, love, don't fear, and be ready. 
to say a word about the hope. It, literally, that's what it says. Be ready to say a word. Be ready to give an answer to the question that involves how. And that, that being ready, it's going to involve some technical skill, some preparation. Not that you need to know the answer to every possible question that anybody might ever raise and need to present it in just so at the perfect, most organized, excellent way. This is not about perfection and excellence. It's about not stumbling about and drawing a blank. Think about what you might be asked and what you might say. Because if you don't, you're going to be surprised. You're going to be living along. This is going to happen. You're going to be living along. And someone's going to say to you, how come you're so calm? I'd be furious if the boss treated me like that. And you're going to say, uh, I guess it's just how I am. Which is not what you wanted to say. It's true in a way, but it's misleading. It's not what you wanted to say. Be ready to give an answer about the hope that's in you and how it is that what they're seeing is actually hope rather than just like superior self-control. This is hope. Where it's from, whom it's from, why you have such a hope. Why it is that, that as a Christian, there's, there's something else that you're looking at and something else that you're leaning into, something else you're depending on, and that's why this interaction they just saw went so differently for you. That readiness to give an answer will come about in you as you give some thought to you. How am I? What, what actually is going on in me? How is growing? How is God growing me? And what has greater focus on fear of the Lord done for me? How has it helped me to unplug from this world and to see God reigning over eternity and to view what is coming as more important and to, to view the judgment as real and serious? And all of these troubles as light and momentary by comparison. How has that all been at work in me? Think about that for you. Nobody, I can't, nobody can actually give you the correct answer. You need your answer. In that situation, maybe it's something, probably a sentence long, a phrase. Well, I, yeah, that's hard, but as God's been helping me think about eternity, I have greater rest in him. Have you ever thought about eternity? A, a statement and a question that furthers dialogue, because you don't want to just monologue for a minute. People turn that off. But it seeks a dialogue. There isn't a right answer, but the point is here, be ready. Give some thought to what's going on inside of you that makes that go differently than it would otherwise. And what's the answer to a question you might face from somebody around you? You don't have to have the perfect right answer. You have to have your answer. That's part of being ready. It's a, it's a skill there, something to be practiced and sharpened and thought about. But more than a skill, there's also an attitude here of willingness. You actually want to get into this. To be ready to give an answer, 
A 20-minute conversation that may come about unexpected can often be inconvenient. The last couple of times that I've had a conversation with somebody who's not a believer about something more than the weather or sports, we've kind of gotten like into what we actually think and actually feel. I'm always in my mind thinking, do I really want to go into this? Because it's always, I've always got somewhere else to be. The last time was about midnight when this happened. And I needed to be somewhere else like an hour ago. Uh, There's always something going on. It's, It's always inconvenient. And I don't know if I really want to get into this, but the God who reigns has said, he does. And I've put you right here, right now. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you, like this guy right here, right now. Are you in or not, Steve? Be ready to give an answer. That involves an attitude of willingness and a little bit of thought and a little bit of practice about what is the answer for me here. And lastly, he points out, but do this with gentleness and respect and a good conscience. Gentleness and respect the good conscience. Good behavior in Christ, a conscience that is clear, that is, I'm, I'm not sinless, but I'm above reproach. Good behavior in Christ and a demeanor like Christ, gentle and lowly, respectful. As we answer questions and explain the hope of Christ that's in me, all goes together and ends up being part of the argument for Christ, which some won't be moved by, obviously. This this big section, chapter 2, verse 12, to here, it, it begins and ends with two different responses. Some may see our good behavior and glorify Christ. That's chapter 2, verse 12. And some may see our good behavior, continue to revile, and then be put to shame by God. We don't control the outcome. But it is far better to say, I'm not going to give anybody any ammunition. I'm going to pursue a path here of righteousness with a good conscience, gentle and lowly, gracious and respectful in my demeanor, like Jesus was. I think that there are some, for probably a lot of us, this this reads and makes perfect sense, and we completely understand it. But there is some kind of a, I think, a thread through through modern Christianity, I don't know if, if you could call it like the boldness thread or what, that kind of says, if we're going to be like, you know, good Christians, we've got to have a little bit of that, a little bit of boldness. And like, where does that come from? I, I, know, I think I know where it comes from. Jesus did deal with the Pharisees like that. And the Old Testament prophets did deal with the false believers of Israel like that. But it's hard to find Jesus dealing with the woman at the well like that. It's hard to find the apostles dealing with the people that they stumble upon in Athens or Rome like that. They engage, they talk, they dialogue with gentleness and respect. Because it's really, really hard to talk about someone who is offering grace and mercy and forgiveness with an attitude of arrogance and overlording. It's hard to to give that mixed message. And so he says, like the Lord himself, 
Would you be lowly like a lamb? Would you lay out in front of people the truth, the answer, gently, graciously, kindly, respectfully, honestly, gently? This is bread and butter witnessing. It's based on living. It's, it's based on I'm around people, I'm with people, I'm loving people. I am not afraid of them, but fearing the Lord. I have an answer, and I actually have an attitude that makes it look like my heart and my hope actually are fixed on someone somewhere else, and I'm not afraid of losing this stuff here. Like I'm telling you, you shouldn't be. It's the demeanor that matches the message. It's the demeanor that matches Christ's attitude when he walked the road to Calvary for us, gentle and humble and lowly, speaking the truth but not standing on his rights. Be ready to give an answer. The answer that is your answer in the middle of that situation. Be willing to give that answer and do so with an attitude that matches Christ and supports the truth of the answer. So the people in seeing us would see him if God would open their eyes to see it. That's how we live under suffering that God brings to us. That's how we live in the middle of affliction that God brings to us for his glory and for our good and for the good of others that they might know him too. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.